You are listening to the Girl on Book Action Anthology Edition. Now with more speaking and less reading. Tonight we're reviewing the Thackeray T. Lambshead Cabinet of Curiosities, edited by Anne and Jeff Vandermeer. Your reviewers are Irene, also known as Doomwench, and Amanda, also known as Wren. What's this? A second Girl on Book Action Anthology podcast? Be still my heart and yours. Yes, indeed, we finally recorded another podcast. Now, before you beat us with sticks for taking so long, be assured that the delay wasn't due to a lack of trying. Ren and I both read an anthology some time ago, and we'd written notes about the stories. But before we could sit down to record, one of the editors died. Since we didn't have a whole lot of good stuff to say about the book, we chose to err on the side of tact... I know, and abandon our plans. This, of course, meant having to find a different anthology to review. And here we are, at last. Yes, it did take us a while to get our act together after the unexpected burst of good taste. But after much ado, we have another episode of the podcast for you. You who must be an incredibly loyal listener given the break between these episodes. But on to the book. To say that this wasn't a good anthology wouldn't be entirely fair. It's chock full of some of the strongest horror and dark fantasy writers of the last ten years. And while there are a number of things that deeply, deeply irritated me about this collection, writers like China Mielville, Brian Evanson, and, of course, Caitlin R. Kiernan can't be dismissed lightly. One day I'm sure we'll write about an anthology that doesn't include a Caitlin R. Kiernan story, but probably not anytime soon. I'm beginning to think it's part of our criteria for picking anthologies. Basically, all the stories, even the ones I didn't care for, were obviously professional and well-constructed. Unfortunately, when it comes right down to it, the bulk of the stories were, in Cabinet of Curiosity's own terms, infernal duds. It was odd, given the wealth of talent brought to bear on this collection, that it was so mediocre. I think the blame for this lies squarely on the shoulders of the conceit of the collection. The idea, if you haven't read the back cover of the book, is that the stories in it are about or inspired by a weird collection of objects collected by an eccentric doctor, Thackeray T. Lambshead. That in itself seems like a rather good idea, particularly given how many authors I've read about that take inspiration from the strange dealies they see in their lives. But I found that the iron yoke of the Lambshead character seemed to keep the authors penned in, and, you know, other barnyard metaphors, rather than letting them be covered in the abattoir blood spray of creativity. This has gotten a bit away from me. My point is that I'd often be getting into a story and then find myself jarred right out of it by the irritating insistence that I pay attention to the Lambshead mythos. The best stories in the collections were ones that barely touched on the central idea, or that had Lambshead as an extremely peripheral character. You know, this book is its own cabinet of curiosities, and despite that sort of quaint fact, I'm still not sure how I feel about it. The problem started in the introduction. Here, we're already in character, and the editors begin to set up Caitlin or Kiernan as some sort of oppositional voice to their own approach to Lambshead. That's all fine and good. Everyone needs a good antagonist. But rather than using this tension to some sort of advantage, the Caitlin or Kiernan story in the book has nothing at all to do with the setup in the introduction. If you're going to go to all that trouble, you should really capitalize on it. I also didn't really appreciate the scapegoating. I think that if you're asking someone to contribute a story to your anthology, you should treat them with a certain amount of common courtesy that I felt was lacking in this introduction. 
And to keep harping on the point, I'm still not 100% convinced that the intro was part of the conceit, since to me it was never clearly established as such. So I was on unsure footing going into reading the stories, and that feeling remained throughout the book. I also had high hopes since this anthology has contributions from several authors I enjoy, but I won't be highlighting their offerings. Nope. I'll be talking about writers whose work I've never before read. The first of the stories written by people who aren't my favorite authors is Ambrose and the Ancient Spirits of East and West by Garth Nix. What worked well here is that rather than taking an object and giving a scientific description, or just a description, like many of the other stories, Nix took an idea and turned it into a story set in an alternate history. In this other Earth, magic is real and the super-secret government organization fights demons and stops crazy wizards from summoning all-powerful Earth spirits. Lambshead was on the periphery of this tale, a tenuous link for a compelling narrative. The issue here being that the conceit was not the main point of this story. Nix allowed his tale to evolve past the confines of Lambshead and his cabinet, and that made it a strong piece. I would read whole novels set in this world, following Ambrose's struggles with demons, etc., in both East and West. My second choice is Brian Evanson's story, Neil. I would actually call this one Lovecraftian, which is probably what I like about it. A simple cataloging job in the cabinet turns into a crawl through a hidden tunnel, some claustrophobic moments, and memory loss. When the narrator comes out of his fugue, he's in a room with a grotesque piece of art and a statue-slash-altar with the word Neil engraved on it. This installation haunts the character ever after his experience in the room. I don't want to give too much away. Actually, I've already said too much. So let me conclude. When I finished reading this piece, my instant reaction was a yes, because it had struck a chord, had pinged that part of my brain that responds to the experiences of the horrible sublime and its uncanny resonance. Continuing on with our favorites, I wanted to discuss a treasure that this collection did unearth for me. Or heard it, if I'm going to continue on on that tack. Kelly Barnhill's submission of St. Brendan Shank is the first short story of hers that I've had the pleasure of reading. And apparently, I'm not the only one, because when I went to look for more information, I discovered she didn't have a Wikipedia page. I did find out more info about her on kellybarnhill.wordpress.com, so if you're interested, you can go there instead. I was so impressed by this story that I think I'm going to begin obsessively collecting some of her other works. Of all the stories in this collection, St. Brendan Shank was one of the few that I felt really captured what the editors were going for. It was built around a strange object, this one's purpose to extend life and youth. It was built around a strange object, this one extending life and youth. But it also had a very Lovecraftian, you might have heard that word once or twice from us before, oppressive sadness that came with possessing it. And despite my earlier claims that the whole lambshead thing muddied most of the stories, he did fit nicely into this one. It neatly explained a number of the mismatch of character traits given to him by the other authors, and was the only story in the collection where I gave a damn about what he was up to. St. Brendan Shank was beautifully written, tailored perfectly for the collection, and amazingly concise, whereas some of the other stories went on a bit. I look forward to a compulsive quest of finding the rest of Barnhill's other works. Neither of us were really blown away by Cabinet of Curiosities, but we may have mentioned that once or, you know, a hundred times. But there was certainly a high quality of writer in this book. 
However, this didn't mean that there weren't a few bad entries in the collection. And one of those bad entries was the Book of Categories by Charles Yu. Maybe I'm just too stupid to understand it, but I thought it was trying too hard. The formatting didn't do anything for me either, and I have to admit that glancing at it before beginning to read it, I almost thought about skipping it altogether. But that wouldn't have been professional, so I stuck it out. Really, though, it was just... meh. Strangely, one of the stories that was the hardest slog for me was one of the ones that I was looking forward to most. Alan Moore has, unquestionably, written the greatest comics of our time. I'm certain you've heard of him, so I won't beat you about the head and neck with his bibliography. While reading, I found myself frantically flipping ahead to see how many pages it would be to his story. But when I got there, I was disappointed. Yes, there were beautiful images, the fair and foul imp fruit for one, but there wasn't much actual story to be found. It was just a hodgepodge of different interesting visual exercises without anything to really connect them. I briefly wondered if the change in medium might have been the problem, but I don't think objects discovered in a novel under construction would have been much better as a comic. It felt like the bones of something interesting that never had time to grow meat. Uh, I'm a vegetarian. That's, that's how that works, right? And it was more than a bit of a letdown. Since there are 30 stories in this collection, we do have a couple of honorable mentions. Stories that didn't quite blow us away, but still left a positive mark. I only have one of these, and I picked that easily. It's The Singing Fish by Amal El Motar, probably mispronounced horribly, my apologies to the author. This story pulled me in with its depiction of an artist's descent into madness and the relationship to critics. I think it appealed to me doubly since I'm currently overly fascinated by women and hysteria slash madness. Okay, I'm always interested in artists, especially women artists, and the connection between art and madness, but recent thesis work has really amplified this attraction for the moment. Now, I know this hasn't been the most positive overall review, but the rest of the stories didn't evoke anything for me. Not curiosity or emotion, not awe or horror. Many of them were finely crafted, to be sure, but they didn't stand out. The stories I mentioned still resonate with me. I had a few more runners-up. Um, I was more than fond of The Very Shoe by Helen Oyeyemi, whose name I'm almost certainly mispronouncing, so ditto with the uh, apologies to the author. It was a genuinely sad story about the endurance of love, and you know how good a love story has to be to keep my attention. It also mixes a light-hearted narrator with extremely dark subject matter, in a way that the rest of the book, and many stories in general, fail to do. It hardly needs mentioning that I enjoyed China Mielville's story, Pulvidometer, The Dust's Warning, because it had his usual vivid sense of dread and the ability to make the impossible seem not only likely, but mundane. And, again, hardly needs saying that I enjoyed Caitlin R. Kiernan's short story. But this brings us to an almost unheard-of point. Irene didn't really care for this story. I thought that uh, it was very like The Red Tree, where we had different perspectives and snippets of dreams that we just kept coming back to, and the dream unfolded, and that, again, that sense of just dread and things getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, but uh, you didn't really feel the same way about this one, did you? No, for me it was 
too removed. What I usually really enjoy about Kiernan's work is that it's, it has this sense of immediacy. You're really pulled in, and I think it has a, a lot to do with her switch, especially recently, to the first-person narrative. But, you know, you're really pulled in, and you're really sort of engaged with this protagonist who isn't necessarily, a, you know, a traditional protagonist. But you're emotionally involved, and this was just too distant because it was all sort of third-hand accounts and sort of transcribed letters and sort of bits and pieces. So while you still had, you know, the overall themes that she's always sort of incorporating with the dreams and the dread, it just, it was too far away from me to really be engaged with the narrative. I guess it felt more like um, a traditional, actual Lovecraft story, where we're talking about, uh, you know, the the stories being told by a cousin of a brother of a friend who went to college with a guy that things actually happened to. Um, so I guess this is more uh, experimental to be more Lovecraftian rather than more modern Lovecraftian, which is what more of what she usually is. Yeah, I could I could see that, but I also sort of felt like it was almost too academic in a way. Sort of that that sort of removed point of view, that sort of sort of objective distance instead of a subjective point of view. And I guess we don't get as much of the unreliable narrator. I mean, I guess the the the, the postcards and stuff might be unreliable, but uh, because we are so distant, we don't really know what's going on. Um, it was also odd because I really expected with all the build-up in the introduction that it would be a story, um, maybe even a swashbuckling adventure of her, of Caitlin or Karen as a character rather than as the writer, uh, discrediting Lambshead's work or being involved in that world. But it really wasn't that. And it's just very odd that they went on and on about that. And um, neither she in her story nor any of the other characters uh, in the other stories mentioned it. I know, and, you know, that's sort of why I come back to the introduction being, you know, maybe not part of the conceit, is that it didn't really capitalize on that in her story or any of the other stories, and I really was expecting her piece to be totally different from what we got based on that introduction. That's not the only time um, that the the introduction and the the surrounding text sort of led us led us astray. Um, in that story, the rats one um, taking the rats to Riga, we had sort of a, a similar thing where they talk about the painting being oh it's evil and scary and Lambshead locks it up in the deepest darkest dungeons, and then what we end up with is sort of a well you described it as sort of a an undergrad paper. Yes, a very badly done undergrad paper. It, we're just, it just described a painting that we already had a picture of. Yeah, and the picture almost would have been more effective, I think, than, you know, that sort of not really essay that went with it. Because the painting, like itself, is really sort of creepy. The story didn't really explain the content of the painting. It just said what it was, which was sort of came off as a bit pointless, I thought. Yeah, it was just another one of those pieces that seemed more like a, you know, boring description than actually being engaged with the conceit. It does uh, bring us sort of nicely to the actual design of the book, though, which was really, um, of of the aspects of the book, quite good, like quite above... um, above sort of the mediocrity that a lot of the rest of it was was mired in. Yeah, 
the book itself is it's really gorgeous and a lot of the drawings are really interesting and the um the title pages for the different sections are just beautiful and you know I'm a sucker for a nice sort of typeset and this one sort of really did something for me it was really nice looking too it looks a bit like um, when you're actually looking at a cabinet of curiosities and you see those uh, the sort of the, the the type labels that will go next to the things. It, it, it sort of it reminded me of that, like in a good way. It was reminiscent, but it was still easy to read. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. And the pictures there, and there's a lot of illustration in this. Um, for the most part were very helpful. Like if we were talking, there's one, um, in a, a story I, I didn't really care for threads. Um, there was uh, focused quite a bit on a tapestry and instead of having to spend, you know, a page talking about what the tapestry looked like, there was just a picture of it. And the same actually in the, um, the, the singing fish that you mentioned, uh, it, it just shows you a picture of what they're actually talking about in the story. It really added something. It didn't take anything away and it wasn't just sort of oh, look, we'll put some pictures in, that'll make it, you know, pretty. It really added something to a lot of these stories. So, you know, it's very nice. And, you know, it was it was pretty, like the art itself was, was quite pretty as well, just on a purely superficial level. It was nice art. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of complicated, um, there's a lot of complicated bits and bobs in this and, and being able to see them uh, made it a, a lot easier to understand what they were talking about. Yeah. The only downside to the design is that it's a hardcover and it's quite... Oh, it's so heavy. I was going to take it with me on vacation and just sort of use it as, you know, pleasure reading on the beach, but it was too heavy and it didn't fit into, it didn't fit into my purse. It didn't fit into the bag where you like put your towels and stuff. It's big and it, I mean, it doesn't weigh as much as Wise Man's Fear. You don't need a lectern to read it. Which you did with Wise Man's Fear. Yes. Uh, but per pound, it's not as bad as Wise Man's Fear. Uh, but it was, it is very heavy. Yeah, it's almost like a, one of those coffee table books that you don't actually take anywhere. You just leave it out on your coffee table and, you know, people can look at it because it's interesting. Yeah, and um, the, the, there's a lot of really short, short stories in here were the same. You could just, you know, briefly sit down and, and have a look at the, the, the pictures and, and like the couple of page story and go on your way. Something else that I thought um, wasn't as successful as the design was a lot of the, let's call them funny stories, the, the more lighthearted ones, um, like the uh, the obel gun and threads, which I mentioned earlier, and uh, the taffy pillar, or the taffy puller, rather. There was a lot of that trying to be funny. Yeah, I think a brief note pertaining to the absence of some bird thing was another one that tried to be funny and really sort of failed. None of them made me want to laugh. Most of them just felt sort of like they were straining and that that like you were talking with the the book of categories where it's just trying so hard to be weird and eccentric and and interesting and funny and it just it, oh, it felt like um really early vaudeville yeah or those you know people who try to write lovecraftian stories but put humor into them and it really really doesn't work and i get it i get wanting to juxtapose something sort of ridiculous and funny with the just the dread and actually um in book uh the kraken 
there was some some good uh, use of that where, yeah, we've got the dread and the scary and the, all this bad stuff's happening, but occasionally there'd be something kind of funny. Uh, but this was just, it tried so hard. Yeah, there was a lot of, oh, oh, look at the, you know, Professor Lamb's head. Look at, look at him being just a crazy old guy collecting all the stuff. Oh, ha, ha, he's such a character. Um, but he just sort of came off as a bit schizophrenic because he was doing the ha-ha funny stuff, but then he was also out, um, you know, conducting horrible experiments on various peoples. Or researching other horrible experiments that other people had done on people. Yeah, so he, he the character... And I mean, I guess that that's what happens when you put him in the hands of so many, so many authors, because there's quite a few contributors to this. But it, it didn't, uh, it, it didn't work for me having him be sort of both a funny, uh, nutty professor type of a guy and a mad scientist who is a bit amoral. Yeah, it just no, it didn't make sense for him to be both of those, and. Since it was all written by different people, it wasn't even that we could see a progression like, well, he was, you know, this sort of mad scientist in his younger years, and now that he's older, you know, he's sort of kind of kooky. It was just like, sometimes he was kooky, sometimes he was a mad scientist, sometimes he was very, very serious, but, you know, it just didn't make sense. And it wasn't just that we were switching the person who was telling the story. Like, it wasn't just the, the difference in the narrators. It was the way he acted, the, the facts of the way he acted were all over the place. It was it was jarring. Yeah, I think the conceit really sort of broke down in that respect. And, you know, there wasn't enough control over the way that the material was being presented. And that led to the funny stories not being so funny. Um, and... Which is just not very well written, unfortunately. Um, but there were uh, there were some definite moments that we found pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> there, there were a number of stories in the collection that were about um, the experimental torture of children. That were they were hilarious. It was hilarious. Yeah, those were. Pretty funny. And it was, it was all about educating children and, you know, what would be most effective in that respect. And, you know, I just, while these stories were kind of creepy, they were also really, really funny. There was one um, called Daisy's Patent Automatic Nanny, where the child is uh, brought up by a nanny and just, just uh, an auto, uh, a robot nanny is just horribly, horribly scarred by it. It's very dark, but also, also quite funny. I guess what I'm saying here is that uh, I'm advocating the torture of children. I, on the other hand, will put in the disclaimer and tell you that I only approve of these things in fiction. In real life, you know, children should be treated with care and delicacy, which is to say that I really, really thought that a short history of Dunkelblau's Meistergarten by Tad Williams was great. It's about this mad scientist who builds this machine that's supposed to educate children, and they're locked inside, and there's like this robot, another robot teacher, and she sort of punishes and gives them rewards depending on whether or not they get the answers right or wrong, and it was just... 
it was funny and it was creepy and it was great. So, you know, t- take that for what it's worth um, from us, uh, noted noted child enthusiasts, I guess. <laughs> um, so that's uh, pretty much all I had to say about the Cabinet of Curiosities. I guess if you're looking for a recommendation, you should probably look elsewhere. Um, there are a couple of good stories in here, and um, the design is pretty neat. Uh, so if you wanted to wait until you could get it for five bucks as a paperback, might be worth your while, but I wouldn't pay cover price for this uh, bludgeoning tome again. I agree with Amanda. But I have a feeling that some of you who obsessively collect um, books that have stories by, you know, their favorite authors might already have picked this up. If you were as disappointed as we were, we'd love to hear about it. Or if um, we're living in a crazy, crazy backwards world where we're the only people who didn't enjoy this, we wouldn't mind hearing about that either. Well, it does occasionally happen that we're wrong. Not wrong. Just dissenting. Right. Yes, we're we're being contrary. Yes. Uh, so I think that's about all the time we'll steal away from you reading uh, actual books. Uh, barring death, dismemberment, or a plague that only affects editors, we'll be back uh, at the end of October with uh, another another podcast. Hopefully, we can find something else that hasn't been edited by Ellen Datlow or Terry Windling. Uh, but I'm not making any promises. Goodbye. The Girl on Book Action podcast can be found on iTunes or on our blog. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more of our written movie and book reviews at the same blog, girlonbookaction.blogspot.com.